Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Oh my goodness, this last week, uh, I made a point that Michael Jordan is the best basketball player of all time, and it's not LeBron James. Uh, And just to kind of prove the point to myself, I went and watched video of LeBron James flopping this last week, and I was like, see, I was right. Uh, Michael Jordan, really the, probably the greatest basketball player of all time. And after he had played his last game with a record-breaking, history-making, career average of over 30 points, I'm just trying to make my case here at the beginning of this, uh, Tony Robbins, who's kind of the great leadership guru, went and talked with him about his career and what it was that set him apart from everybody else, what it was that really made him the best. And he said, Michael, what, is it? what was it? Like, what was, the, what was the secret sauce? Is it God-given talent? Is it your just ability? Is it your skill? He said, what is it? And this was his answer. He said, well, I do have a lot of God-given talent. Um, I worked really hard, but really it was my standards. Every day I demand more from myself than anybody else could humanly expect. I'm not competing with anybody else I'm competing with what I'm capable of. That's a great thought, isn't it? Just this last week, as we began the series called Like Jesus, one of the things that we looked into was in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, where Paul, talking to the church at Corinth, he talks about you beating your body into submission, but he makes a point. He talks about athletes that would compete at what were called the Isthmian Games every two years. And they would beat their body into submission for 10 months so that they were prepared for the work that was ahead of them. And he says, you know, they actually compete for a prize that is perishable. It was more or less like a a little pine wreath that they would put on their head. He said, only one can win. But spiritually speaking, that just wasn't true. He said, run in a way so that you can win. So it's not that in your relationship with Jesus that you can earn anything with him. I like what Dallas Willard says. He says, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. And he's absolutely right. What we do as we become like Jesus, this is our process of discipleship. What this means is, is we take the relationship that we already have, one that was given to us, initiated by him, by his grace and his favor for us. And once we receive that relationship with him, the rest of it is the process of our discipleship, taking the relationship that we already have and then growing in maturity in it. This is why I love the quote by Michael Jordan. I'm not competing with anybody else. I'm competing with what I am capable of. And here's what he goes on to say. He said, you have to expect things of yourself before, that you, before you can do them. You have to expect things of yourself before you can do them. I'm reminded of Solomon, you know, the wisest person that ever lived. People would travel around the world to see the wisdom of Solomon. And I wanna tie a spiritual note in here in Proverbs 4, 25 to 27. This was the advice that he gives to his son because this is what the Proverbs were about. He wanted to give advice to his son on how he could live life really well and he said let your eyes look straight ahead fix your gaze directly before you give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all of your ways do not turn to the right or to the left keep your foot from evil it's good advice and by the way Solomon would know 
because if you take a look at his own life and you look at 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father David, except that Solomon too offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the local places of worship. It sounds spiritually like a great place for him to start, doesn't it? He was following the Lord. He was devoted to the Lord. And then you flip it over to 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 3, a mere eight chapters later, and it says, King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to the Pharaoh's daughter. And it goes on to say, you must not intermarry with women from other nations. They must not intermarry with you because they will turn your heart away to follow their gods. To these women, Solomon was deeply attached in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 who were concubines. And here it says, and they turned his heart away. In a matter from 1 Kings chapter 3 to 1 Kings chapter 11, you see something that happens in the life of Solomon. 700 wives, 300 concubines. By the way, a lot of women. I don't know how he juggled this all the time, but he did. But this was the compromise that he was willing to make. They had so taken over his heart that what he had done was he had built temples to the worship of their other gods and he enjoined with them in the worship of the other gods. They turned his heart away. He would know to say to his son, hey, be careful. Just be really careful. Let your eyes be fixed ahead. Don't look to the right and don't look to the left. I'm reminded of this funny story that I ran into some years ago. This guy named Drew Anderson, he was talking about a time when he was in the mall shopping with his wife. And uh, he said, we were there at a kiosk in the mall and this really beautiful woman walks by. And uh, he said, I have to admit, my eyes followed her. He said, without looking up from the item that my wife was looking to purchase, she says, was that worth the trouble that you're in now? <laughs> and the answer is probably not, probably not. This morning, we're gonna take a look in James chapter one, and I invite you to turn there because when it comes to what it means to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus, to be like Jesus, we need to talk about those things that keep us from being like him. Last week, I actually ended worship with a question. What is it that is the hindrance to you being a fully devoted follower of Jesus? And today, I'm actually picking up where I left off because James gives this cautionary tale about the way that we look at temptation and the way that temptation plays in our life. And he says, we've gotta start there. And then once we remove that from our life, desires that control us, those are out of the way, then we can actually fall in line with what God had created us to be. Here's what James says. No one, should undergo a no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, here's some interesting Bible trivia for you, is that when we see our, our English translation, it talks about a testing in your life in James chapter one, verse three, or a tempting in your life in James chapter one, verse 13. The Greek is actually the same word, testing and tempting. It's parasmos. The, the way that you know the difference, whether you're talking about a tempting or a testing, is you look at the context. The context is what would tell you. 
Um, and so in James chapter one, verse three, the author is referring to tests of faith that comes by the trials of life. And you've probably all experienced what those are like. So if we respond well to the trials of life, we grow in maturity in our faith. But in James chapter one, verse 13, what we just read, he's speaking of solicitations to us to do evil things. That's the context. So you could compare the text that we're looking at to external difficulties, meaning things that are outside of you, and temptations or internal things that are your, your natural desires that are at work within you. So if we're not careful, the testing on the outside may become a temptation on the inside as we are tempted to develop evil solutions to the problems that are testing us. Have you ever done that before? You have, you have somebody that is doing an evil against you and that then becomes the excuse for the evil that you do to them. That would be an external circumstance that basically pings something on the inside of you to respond to evil with evil. That would be an example of what James has in mind. So James made the point that the natural thing to do is to deny personal responsibility for the choice that you make and to find somebody else to blame it on. That could be, for example, your spouse. That could even be God. And as he points out, we're pretty good at that. So a couple things that I really want you to kind of lock into your heart and your mind this morning. And here's the first thing. Even though you're going through a trial, and pretty much everybody does. It's like they say, there are three types of people. Those that are going through a trial, those that have been through a trial, and those that are about to go through a trial. It's all of us. Even though you're going through a trial, it is not a license to give in to temptation. Your frustration in your marriage is not a license to give in to temptation and to sin. Your frustration at work, it's not a license to give in to temptation and to sin. I love this quote, it says, I always run from temptation, but I do it very slowly. That way it can catch up to me. Maybe some of us work a little bit too much like that. But James starts by saying this, it's not a license. You respond to evil with godliness not by compounding the evil that's already at work in the world. But it did get me thinking, we really kind of need to understand what the nature of temptation even looks like. And what it really means, and I love the way that Tim Keller unpacks this, is that it's when we take a good thing and we use it in the wrong way. We're, we, we're kind of drawn to take a good thing, but to use it in the wrong way. So think about it, isn't this basically what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden? And the answer is yes. God created everything, he said that it was good, and he says there's this one tree that I portioned to say you need to stay away from this, but everything else, enjoy it. Hey, here's your wife, I'm bringing the two of you together. Enjoy each other. God starts really well, doesn't he? Here's tons of food, here's a spouse, enjoy everything that I've created. And then there's this one thing that he says, but don't go there. And the way that they look at what was forbidden was not, hey, you know what? That's a good piece of advice. And I think we need to listen to the creator of things to, not, to follow his lead on where and where not to go. Instead, they looked at what was blocked from them and thought that, you know what? You're actually withholding a blessing from me. Or another way of looking at it is, in that moment, they decided that they were gonna strike out on their own and create a destiny that was independent of God. They wanted to be in control. That's what temptation looks like. This is why when C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters, one of the things he said was all extremes, except for extreme devotion to the enemy. And you have to remember, screw tape is talking to Wormwood. This is a demon that's training a younger demon. 
So the enemy in the screw tape letters is God. And he said, all extremes except extreme devotion to the enemy are to be encouraged. Anything that it takes to pull them away. You know, I've thought about it this week. I don't think, for example, the internet is an inherently bad thing. But man, we do bad things with the internet. Is that fair? It's not inherently bad. Social media. If you look at the studies on depression rates and when they actually magnified, you get around 2012, that's when more than 50% of the population of the United States had, had a phone in their hand. You see the depression rates skyrocket. But you know what? There's nothing inherently wrong with posting things on social media so, or to be connected with people, family and friends that might live a long way away from you. It's not a bad thing in and of itself. And I hope this helps to lock in what Tim Keller was trying to say about the way that temptation works. Is It's a good thing that is used in the wrong way. And we all do it. Let's talk a little bit about the source of temptation because it is a reality. Uh, let's think of first who not to blame. Can we start there? Does that sound good? Let's don't blame God. Let's don't start there. Uh, the way that it kind of goes and Boy, if I've heard this once, I've heard it a thousand times. Well, I know God wants me to be happy. And this is gonna make me happy. And so God put this here so that I would be happy, which is God, what God wants me to be. I wanna remind you of something. God wants you to be holy. That's what God wants. Your happiness is secondary. Or maybe you need a different definition of happiness. Because it doesn't come from God. The source of temptation doesn't come from him. There's nothing, he says in verse 13, there's nothing from God that sends sin to us. And a reason for this is that there's nothing in God that responds favorably to sin. Nothing in him at all. There's no sin seems like a good idea to me moment in the life of God. And so what that means is, is he's not gonna be recommending it to you, so it's gotta be coming from somewhere else. It's gotta be coming from somewhere else. So if you can't blame God, who do you blame? And the answer is, blame the person that's next to you. I'm kidding, don't do that. And when you go home, don't do this to your spouse either. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. How about this? Verse 14, what did he say? We get carried away by our own evil desires. That's what happens. We get carried away. Like the Calgon commercials from those years ago, for those of you that remember. Calgon, carry me away. You get carried away by your own evil desires. Or another word for there, that is lust. You get carried away by your own lust. So not only can we not blame God for our mistakes, you know who else you can't blame? Satan, can't blame him either, or the adversary. What James is trying to say is, is you sin because you chose to. That's why, there's the why. You sin because you chose to. But here's what Satan does. What Satan does is he puts things in front of you that he thinks he can get you to respond to. He plays you. So we have desires in us that are capable to respond to the things that he presents to us but we're the ones that are making the choice. Let me give you a, so uh, the football season is coming up very soon. And when I was watching the other night, there were uh, some of the coaches that were talking about um, all of the real, meaning the football real, that they have been watching from the previous season. 
a couple of things that they have been watching. They've been watching the execution of their own team, what went well and what didn't go well. But the other thing that they have been watching and analyzing is they have been watching the other teams, the plays that they've been running on offense, as well as the schemes that they put together on defense. And the reason that they do it is that they want to know the basic things, the basic moves that the other team makes so that they can, like chess, they can actually make a different move and that they can beat them. That's the whole point. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, here's what it says. It says, we are not unaware of his schemes, meaning talk about Satan. We are not unaware of his schemes. And this is one of his schemes, is to get you to blame someone or something else for the things that you're choosing. It's one of his schemes. You're getting played when you respond like that. And isn't this exactly what Adam and Eve did? So in Genesis 3, you have the fall. And then what happens? Adam says, that woman you gave me. Did you notice he actually blamed two people in one line? I mean, way to go, guy. That woman that you gave me. You and you, you did it. I mean, if it hadn't been for the two of you and my, I would have been fine, but no. And then Eve, how about her? What did she say? That serpent made me do it. That serpent made me do it. And then the serpent looks and he goes, hey, there's nobody else around me. No, I'm just kidding, he didn't do that. You get the idea? Everybody in Genesis 3 is passing the buck. But here's the catch, and this is why it's one of the great schemes of Satan. This is why it's one of his best moves, is if you don't say it, it can't be addressed. If you don't call it what it is, you can't address it. His scheme is to keep you from calling sin what it is in your life. That's his scheme. On the other hand, if you look at 1 John 1, 9, what does it say? If we confess our sin, he's faithful. If we name it, if we call it what it is, He's faithful. He is faithful and just. So what does the process of sin look like? Well, I'm gonna remind you of something this morning. It's not something that just happens. You know, it's not something that just happens. Um, James says this, it actually started with desire. I mentioned this before, that's the word for lust. And I'm gonna tell you something interesting this morning. Did you know that if you look in the Bible, the word lust is not always a bad thing? And I know what you're thinking right now. Tell me more, and I will. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. Solomon, when he was writing the Proverbs for his son, pay attention to a couple of things that he says. In Proverbs 5.18, he says, let, the let your fountain be blessed and take pleasure in the wife of your youth. And by the way, yes, he is talking about a sexual relationship with his wife. Take pleasure in her. And the word there is you lust after her. It's not an inherently bad thing. I mean, God created marriage, didn't he? He brought the man and woman and he put them together, didn't he? And then he says, be fruitful and multiply. And there's kind of a way that works. But he says, let your lust or your desire be for her. That's where he portioned it to be. Lust is not inherently bad. In Proverbs 5, 15 through 17, he says, drink water, and water from your own cistern flowing from your own well. Again, this is language of sexuality. And he says, there is a place where you draw water from. It's an analogy for him. There's a place that you draw water from. And where it's supposed to be is within the marriage, the, the marriage covenant that I've created for you. But what he's pointing out there is, is you're gonna have an attraction for each other. You're gonna have a lust for each other. And it's perfect fine, but did you know that lust can go off the rails? You already knew that. And here's what James says, desires become bad when we seek to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. Or as he says, you got carried away and enticed. You got carried away and enticed. And just so you know, when he uses the language of carried away, it comes from a hunter who traps its prey. Did you catch that? 
the same words that mean carried away is actually a word picture that James is creating that says you got trapped by a hunter. So that got me thinking because I'm a hunter. Satan lays the trap by hiding the consequences. That's what he does. He lays the trap by hiding the consequences. As I was thinking about it, I don't think, I don't think there's ever been a mouse that has been caught because they were attracted to the trap. I think they were probably attracted to the peanut butter or the cheese that was on the trap. Is that fair? That's the same word picture. Or, for me, uh, the deer is not actually, the deer is actually looking for corn. You know who they're not looking for? Me. They're not looking for me at all. They're looking for a snack. And I'm here to tell you that's exactly the same way that Satan works. He puts the bait out there, but he hides the trap from you. It's the hunter and not the hunted that has the consequences in mind. Did you catch what I just said? It is the hunter and not the hunted that has the consequences in mind. So when the deer comes up and the corn has been scattered and they're there to get their snacks, they think they're there for nutrition. What they don't know is that I'm not terribly far away. That's what they don't know. And it's the exact same thing with the way that Satan works in your life. What you don't know, he lays the trap out and he's right there saying, I'm ready to get you. Just take it, just take it. So what James says is desire leads to deception. You see the deception here? It's the cheese on the trap. It's the peanut butter on the trap. He said, and that leads to your disobedience. I'm gonna take it. And he said, the result of it, something in you dies. Something in you dies. So when you follow the lead and the deception of Satan, that means that you are not following the lead and the guidance of your loving father. You're following somebody else. You bought into it. And then when he's got you, it's like putting a rope around your neck and he just drags you with it. Now I've got you. That was all that he wanted. Now I wanna be clear. The sin is not the desire itself. The sin is not the desire itself. Instead, it's when we disobey by choosing to act on the desires that we have. That's what it is. Because you could be a mouse, see the cheese on the trap and say, you know what, that cheese looks really good but I think I'm gonna to pass today. That's the response. It doesn't mean the cheese isn't there. It doesn't mean the desire isn't in you. It's that you're looking past the cheese to say, I don't think this is gonna work out too well. I just don't think this is gonna work out too well. And so we have this possibility this morning. And this is why when we talk about being like Jesus, we have this possibility that the first thing that we have to do to be like him is that we have to break the strongholds that are keeping us from being like him. And James is just telling us how. So how do we get victory over temptation? I'm gonna give you a couple things to think about this morning. Here's the first. One is I want you to direct your thoughts on the goodness of God, on the goodness of God. Uh, Satan, the adversary, does not have goodness in him. You can tell he's the one putting cheese on the trap, right? I want you to focus your thoughts on the goodness of God. If you look at James 1, 16 and 17, it says, don't be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who doesn't change like a shifting shadow. He says, I want you to think about that. His example, goodness comes from the Father of lights, meaning in the form of the sun and the moon and the stars, all the things that provide light so that you can see things for the way that they really are. And we benefit from the sun's light because of that. And even it says this about him, there's no shifting shadow in him. So if you find yourself in a shadow, you say, how did I get there? And the answer isn't because God moved. It's because you moved. 
It's because you moved. You stepped from the light and you stepped into the dark. And that's why you can't see God as well as you used to. It says with him, there's no variation or shadow. And so the promise is, is that the God is, what, is that God is what's going to be stable for you and you can remain in the light. The other option is you can step back into the shadows. But remember, that's where you've chosen to be. So remember the goodness of God. Second, Noah's word. Noah's word. Um, in verse 18, it says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of everything that he has created. Uh, Satan, by the way, uses temptation to give birth to death. God uses the word of truth to give us life. Did you catch the difference there? He will birth death in you. God will birth life in you. And he does it through his word. Stay in the word. One of the things that I always say is you can't quote what you don't know. You can't draw on a resource that you don't have. Stay in the word. Because I'm telling you, you walk out on a Monday, the world's gonna hit you. Are you ready for what the world has given you? Stay in the word. And also third, know God's plan for you. He's already given what it is. It says that we might be a first fruit of everything that he has created. This is language that is borrowed from the Old Testament. You could look at my, you can look in a number of places, but a first fruit would be a crop that they grew. And what they would do is they would actually come time for harvest, they would pull the crop in and the very best of the crop that they had, they gave to God. The very best, right off the top, they gave it to God. And you get this word image from James. He says, yeah, but you're the first fruit. So you give him the very best of yourself. You give him the very best of yourself. In other words, don't give him the leftovers. Don't give him that. So James is saying to believers that this is what God wants you to be. It's what he created you for. And new birth means different life. New birth means a different life. Here's what this means. It means that it's beneath who we are in Jesus to take what Satan is offering us. It's beneath us. Have a higher view of yourself. Have a real view of the adversary. And don't buy the goods that he's selling you. I was thinking about this week. I have a friend in my home, also known as the Dark Lord, and that's my dog, Duke. He's good people. Uh, he's getting a little old now. He's like 10, slightly arthritic. Uh, he's kind of at that point where he doesn't care. You know what I mean? <laughs> he just doesn't care. Duke, come here. He's like, I don't know. But it didn't start that way. I'll give you a couple of pictures of the guy because he's just a cutie. I will tell you this, he's full of loving, this guy. Uh, but I was thinking, this picture that I provided for you, you see where his head is on full alert over there? This is when we were in North Carolina, and this isn't terribly long after we got him, and I was the guy that was in the yard right there. That's my front yard. I was the guy that was training this dog. Now, there were a number of things that I used to do to train him, uh, but one was there was a routine to it. I mean, I would get up really early in the morning, and Duke and I got to work. Um, and then at the end of the day, whenever I came back in from work, Duke and I got to work. There were a couple of things that I was wanting from Duke. One of the things is I was wanting him to recognize that I'm the master in the relationship, not him. I'm the master in the relationship and not him. Um, and so when I would give him commands, I was actually expecting him to respond to the commands. But you know what? I actually didn't expect him to respond to the command the first time I gave it. I knew that there was a process of training that was involved with him. And so that he could both recognize my voice, but he could also recognize signals that I gave him to, for him to know what I wanted him to do. Here's eventually the way that it got. 
I would take, y'all know those big arms that you can sling and throw the tennis ball? Because I was training him to retrieve because he's a Labrador. Um, and so I was training him to retrieve. And I would stand in my front yard. And this is after he and I had worked a long time together where I could throw it a little bit. He would pick it up. He would bring it back to me. And I wanted that ball in my hand. That was where he was supposed to put it. But you get a little bit further into the training and I could sling that thing. And that ball would fly. And Duke, right there, just so you know, I'd already thrown the ball. Now, where is he? He is standing right by me. And why is that? Because that's exactly what I trained him to do. It's exactly what I trained him to do. And so Duke, he is right here. And do you see his face? That dog is looking right at me, basically saying, you tell me when. You tell me when. And I will, all I would have to do is either this, go. And he's gone. And as far away as he got from me, when he would get the ball, he would pivot and he would turn and he's trying to find where I'm at so that he can come back to me. And I would sling that thing so sometimes there was not a voice command that I would even give to this dog. I would have my hand up in the air and he would look and hold and when I did this, he came running back and he put the ball in my hand. This is the kind of picture that we're supposed to have in our mind's eye when it comes to our being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Solomon said it to his son before. He says, don't look to the right or to the left. Because he did. He says, and it wasn't worth it. James is saying, fix your eyes on the goodness of God. Because when you fix it on something else, it's gonna take you places that you never wanted to go. And this is why when it comes to our being a fully devoted follower of Jesus, we need to be like Duke. We need to recognize the voice of the master and we need to fix our eyes on him. So I picked up where I left off last week. What is it that is hindering you from following Jesus like that? And with the promise of what we see in 1 John 1, 9, he says, call it what it is so that you can move on from it because we live under this promise. There is no evil that the Father's love cannot pardon and cover and there is no sin that is a match for his grace. Not one. Not in me, not in you. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.